Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Alexis Okewo, is a staff writer for The New Yorker, whose debut book was published earlier this month. The book, A Moonless, Starless Sky, Ordinary Women and Men Fighting Extremism in Africa, has been getting rave reviews, and rightfully so. The book tells the story of subtle forms of resistance, how individuals in their own way are pushing back against injustice. And in so doing, she shines a light on some important, though often overlooked global stories, like slavery in the country of Mauritania or the plight of former child soldiers in Uganda. It is a beautifully written book, and I'll post a link to it on the website. Alexis traces her interest in these issues to her upbringing as an American-born child of Nigerian immigrants to Montgomery, Alabama, where Rosa Parks' act of resistance ignited a civil rights movement. Alexis also discusses her career in journalism, including key stories she reported on, like the Chibok schoolgirls kidnapping in 2014, which we discuss at length. This is a great discussion. If you can't tell, I'm very excited about this book. I do recommend that you go out and purchase it and read all her archived stories at thenewyorker.com as well. Um, so this conversation focuses a lot on resistance, a lot on acts of resistance, and my first exposure to concepts about resistance came as part of the Humanity in Action Summer Fellowship Program, which included an in-depth study to historical examples of resistance to the Holocaust in Europe. And we used that as an entry point to discuss how to stand against subtler forms of minority rights abuses and human rights abuses in the contemporary context. And we did that all in a summer fellowship program that you can and should apply to applications are, are still open. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the link, and that'll take you right to the application page. I so strongly recommend you check out this program. Okay, now here is my conversation with Alexis Okewo. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I was inspired to write this book when I was covering the Chibok kidnapping in April 2014, when over 300 girls were taken from their school in northeastern Nigeria by Boko Haram, the terrorist group. I was covering that crisis um, and specifically focusing on people who were caught in the situation and who were fighting back in their own ways, um, specifically a vigilante who was part of an uprising against, against the terrorist group 
and um, schoolgirls who had been kidnapped and then escaped and eventually were going back to school. And that was the own, their own form of resistance. And I realized that this was part of a pattern of reporting that I had been doing for years. I am drawn to extreme situations, but I'm, but I'm drawn to them because I'm most interested in how they affect the people who live in the center of them, how they affect people's choices, um, you know, wh- wh- how people rise or don't rise um, to, to the occasion they find themselves in, how they preserve their ways of life and protect their families um, amid extreme circumstances. And I realized that um, in these conflicts or in these crises, there were always people who were resisting in some way or, you know, um, doing small but significant actions to, to fight against the status quo. And I felt like that wasn't being told enough. Their stories weren't being told enough. That too often we talked about people at the center of crises, especially in Africa, as victims and focus on their suffering as opposed to what they're doing to fight back. What, what I find so interesting about the book is that some of the stories of resistance that you profile are not th- like actions that, you know, I would consider like extraordinary actions, yet mm-hmm. they are nonetheless like a profound act of resistance, like, you know, a, a young woman playing basketball in Mogadishu. That, mm-hmm. that, that's, a, that's a piece of resistance. Yeah, I mean, it was exactly that was what was striking to me is that most of these people in in this book aren't activists. They're not trying to be heroes. They're just trying to go about the daily business of living. Um, As you mentioned, you know, I wrote about teenage girls in Somalia who just want to play basketball, despite the fact that extremists and conservative men in their society threaten them, threaten them with death, um, both in person um, and over the phone and in various different ways. And, you know, what they're doing is brave because it's at risk to their lives. But, you know, the, the, as I said, they're not trying to be heroes. They just want to do the things they feel they're inf- entitled to do as young women. And so it was interesting to kind of explore the range of resistance um, and see that it could be everything from organizing a protest and getting jailed for that or just deciding um you know, what, what kind of sport you want to play or who you want to love and seeing that that's important too. Uh, on, on the, 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 the girls basketball team, the women's basketball team in, in, uh, Mogadishu, I mean, are the women who are playing that team and, and, and some of the women that you profile, like, like aware of like the broader political implications of their desire just to have fun, just to play basketball. And like, I mean, it seems to me just in, in reading a bit that they didn't see themselves as activists. As you said, they just like, wanted to play basketball, but um, was there like this, did they have like a deeper political sense about their, their actions? Well, um, I would say yes and no. I mean, they, you know, a lot of them did know that what they were doing um, was 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 rare in a sense, um, and that it um, could be inspiring to people because it's just not the norm um, in their country uh, for what women are, you know, supposedly allowed to do or approved of doing. Um, and and they know that things weren't always like this. They knew that their mothers had had um, freer existences before the civil war there, before extremism took hold, and so they knew the context you know, in which they were playing. But at the same time, they weren't really imbuing what they were doing with um, 
you know, this kind of profound meaning. They just, they just wanted to, you know, play basketball and that itself. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and I respected that, you know, um, I was trying to think of myself as a teenager and how I would think about things and, um, it made sense to me. Uh, but I was very drawn to, to, to their stories. Can you tell me how you came to the story of Eunice and Bosco? Yeah. Um, so when I first moved to Africa, uh, you know, a decade ago, I was living in Uganda um, as an uh, intern for a state-run newspaper. And at the time, I was, I was doing a lot of stories on the survivors of the Civil War there, which was started by the, the Lord's Resistance Army, which is a fun fundamentalist Christian rebel groups founded by Joseph Kony, the warlord Joseph Kony. And uh, it was, you know, it was a brutal civil war. The rebel group had done horrific things to people. Um, and so, and then when I went back in 2012, um, I was talking with a photographer friend and he was telling me about the fact that some of the, you know, many thousands of children who've been abducted by the LRA to be child soldiers, sex slave porters, you know, quite a few were coming home, escaping and coming home. And some of the abductees who had been forced to be together by the rebel group, um, you know, where they would kidnap the boys to be child soldiers and then the girls to be sex slaves paired with the child soldiers, um, that they were escaping and then deciding to reunite once they escaped. So oftentimes these, um, these couples were forced to be together. They often had children while in captivity, um, spent years together. And then some of them were deciding to reunite despite the fact that they were forced to be, to be together in the first place. And in many cases, their communities, um, were just, uh, you know, were, were just confounded and looked at these couplings with dismay, you know, wondering why the women had decided to be with these men they were forced to be with, you know, who were often initially at least raped by these men. But of course they were children when a lot of these things happened. So, um, I was intrigued obviously. Um, and the photographer and I decided to go report on these stories. We went in with a local organization that was recording the testimonies of some of these survivors. And, um, we ended up focusing on one couple, Eunice and Bosco, who were both kidnapped as children, forced to be together, but formed a bond while in captivity. And then when they escaped, um, Eunice, the woman, decided to to reunite with the man Bosco and lead a life together, despite the disapproval of her family. And it's about her story and why decide, why she decided to do that and the choices she made, and you know how she wanted to preserve her dignity and her. Um, sense of identity and family amid all that the LRA tried to tear away from her. I mean, just, you know, for me reading that story, uh, I mean, it seems like it's just laden with such moral ambiguity uh, mm-hmm. around that relationship. Right. I mean, y- you alluded to it earlier, but in your, your story, you know, she describes that she was raped by him on their first encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how do you, not be like judgmental of, of either, you know, Bosco or Eunice when you're trying to tell their stories? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, so much of this story and, you know, a lot of the book is about the moral grace, you know, what falls between the black and white of, of good and bad. And with this story, you know, I had, I had to remember a few things. One that I wanted to, 
Eunice to tell the story in her own words. And I wanted to, to believe what she told me, to trust in what she was saying. And even if I had my own judgments about it, to, to let her give her own justifications and reasoning for the choices she made. And then also, you know, one thing I had to remember is that um, I, as I write in the book, you know, there in history, there are things that you choose to do, and then there are things that you're forced to do. And then there's that in between. And I think this couple was constantly navigating that because they were kidnapped, again, as children, forced to do these things. Uh, Bosco, the man, later told me that he felt forced to 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 rape her and you know um because that's what was done of um that's what was expected of of the child soldiers when they were given girls um and and so yeah it was and that's something that they're both constantly navigating you know what they were forced to do what they had a choice in doing and how that all came together and so i was really interested in that 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 moral ambiguity the moral grays and how people live with that ultimately. And like, what's that like, like how is that an act of resistance that, that relationship to you? Yeah, to me, her Eunice choosing to love and to be with Bosco is her act of resistance. And I say that because, you know, the LRA, when they kidnap children, you know, from the, from the beginning, what they wanted to do was tear those children away from any sense of family or community they um, had the children go back to the communities to kill people. They even sometimes made the children kill their own family members. They wanted them to feel like they no longer had a home or, you know, any sense of real sense of love. And so the fact that she was able to establish this bond with someone in captivity and carry it afterward and still maintain that and still try to hold on to that bond, despite the fact that her mother, you know, her, her neighbors, um, were in such um, disapproval of this of this union, um, really spoke to me to the fact that this was her, you know, this was her making her choice now of what kind of life she wanted to live now and the things that were important to her. And she wanted to be with someone who had, had experienced these same horrific things, who had made it through to the other side and was now trying to live um, a life the best the best they could. Uh, are you in touch with them still, that couple? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I reached out to them. I think it was the summer, just to see how they were doing. And they're aware of the book and and all that. Yeah, and and it kind of abstract sense. I mean, they don't um, they don't read English, even though they they do speak some of the English. But yeah, they're aware. Um, because you know, first this the story first started as an article, um, which came out. Uh, several years ago. So I first went for that and then later went back on more trips for the book. Um, so what's next for you on, on the, uh, the, the book tour? I, I know you're, I'm, I'm catching you in the middle of, of your tour, but presumably um, what kind of audiences are coming out to this? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. So I'm yeah about halfway through, at least for the October events, um, there'll be some November events and yeah, it's been a pretty um, nicely diverse audience um from younger to older from students to like older people um different races uh, men and women and you know it's been everything from like people who know africa more intimately to people who are just um, interested in stories of women to people who are 
drawn to the um, to the extreme situations in the book and are curious about you know what it's like uh, or, or what it, what the stories are like from these kind of places. And I think people have been um, kind of surprised that some of, some of these things are happening. That you know, I often hear, "Wow, I didn't know this was even going on," or that this had gone on. Uh, you know, especially with stories like the one I have about slavery still existing in Mauritania, mm-hmm. and you know, and people seem inspired too, or at least um, struck by the actions the people in the book are taking. Is there like a common question you've gotten that that's that that you, you keep getting? Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, I think one thing um, people like to ask is how I kind of hold on to hope um, after reporting the stories, um, and you know what it was like reporting in some of these places. And you know, I say, yeah, I mean, it was dangerous reporting in some of these places, but what is hopeful to me or inspiring is seeing how people um, just continue to live their lives and, and, and not just live their lives, but live like multi faceted um, full lives, even amid a war zone, you know, like Mogadishu people are going out to restaurants and, and, you know, going on boat rides and seeing their friends. Exactly. You know, it's, it's not, not any place is just one thing, despite the stereotypes we have of a lot of places in Africa. So I'd love to learn more about you and, and your background. I remember we spoke uh, a while back around the time of, of the Chibok kidnappings, mm-hmm. uh, where I remember I was, you kind of came onto my radar then as, as someone who's offering some, doing some good reporting and, and offering some good in, insight and analysis into that situation a few years ago. But I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you and, and where you come from. So I take it your, your parents are Nigerian, but you were born in the States. Is that right? Yeah, my parents um, are both Nigerian. They met as college students in Alabama. And I was born in Houston and grew up in Alabama. And what what brought your parents to the States? Yeah, they both um, just wanted to come for, for higher education. Uh, they What was completely random is that they both somehow ended up in Alabama, but I guess it was fate. And um, yeah, and they met there. And I think they both originally wanted or thought they would return to Nigeria after college, but like many other immigrants, ended up staying. Where in Alabama? Uh, in Montgomery, the capital. So, I mean, uh, that's like a, a pretty heavy place, I, I have to imagine. Um, do you, like, growing up in Montgomery, do you, like, kind of feel that that weight of, of like, the civil rights history? Um, no, more so. When I, when I was growing up there, I mean, it was just kind of the background, Um you know, it was something that we knew about, but, um, and, th- and that we felt was important, but it's now looking back and, and especially with all that's going now on, on in our politics, that it really is striking, um, to think about this place as both the birth of the civil rights movement, but also, you know, the home of, uh, a lot of ugly things too, relating to race. Like, I have to, I mean, it's sort of surprising to me. I guess it shouldn't be surprising to me, given, you know, the history of, of Alabama that, um, but still, you know, you have a place that is the birthright, birthplace of the civil rights movement, yet you growing up, like, didn't, it wasn't like something that was inculcated on, a, a, like, a daily basis at school or anything. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right. It's like something that they would just rather keep in the background. Yeah, it was like you, you know, you read a little, you read a little bit about it in the history book, and maybe would go to a few museums, uh, you know, once or twice a year. But it wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't celebrated. I mean, it wasn't um, marked in a major way at all. Well, I was just thinking, you know, you write this book about like um, ordinary acts of resistance, and you know, you mm-hmm. grew up in a place that was like, you know, known for like a profoundly extraordinary acts of resistance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I, it actually came up even when I was reporting in Africa. You know, when I write about anti-slavery activists in Mauritania, and I'll, obviously, I'm already thinking, wow, parallels between the fact that slavery still exists now and it was so widespread in the deep south where I grew up. But then he's also telling me that his current movement was in, partly inspired by the civil rights movement, you know, by the um, direct confrontations that civil rights activists did with the authorities. Um, so it's, it's interesting. There, there are a lot of parallels and a lot of connections. And, and so you mentioned Martina a couple of times. That was probably worth pointing out that this is kind of known among you know, human rights activists as being like the one place in the world where modern day slavery is most prevalent. And mm-hmm. it, and as, as you could probably explain, I mean, it, it seems like, um, it, it, it's sort of like culturally ingrained as well. Mm-hmm. What, what, yeah. So like, what was, uh, who did you profile in, in Mauritania and like, what did you learn about slavery there? Yeah, I, uh, profiled this, uh, this radical activist named Biram who, um, became very, active at a young age, you know, once he learned out, once he found out that his grandmother had been a slave. Um, and he was just, um, incensed by the injustice of it all. And is you know, is now an activist leading the most successful, um, anti-slavery group in Mauritania. They freed tens of thousands of slaves and gotten slave owners thrown in jail for the first time. And what I learned about slavery there is that, you know, it, it isn't just like the slavery that happened in the U.S. There are key differences, um, even though it does often fall along racial lines. Um, they, there is there's, there's a own complicated history uh, related to both um, race and ethnicity and then also religion uh, or a certain interpretation of religion. And Biram, the activist, is fighting against all that. You know, he's trying to unite black Mauritanians and black Mauritanians. He's also, as a pious Muslim man, trying to dispel this interpretation um, of Islam that claims that slavery is an acceptable practice. And so he has done some radical acts there, like burning holy book, burning books considered holy in Islam that some imams and politicians used to justify slavery. Um, and he's gone to jail several times but he's someone with a single-mindedness that just won't relent until he sees, you know, slavery ceasing to exist. And, and like, how, how far is Mauritania from that ultimate vision of ridding itself from from that kind of slavery? And and, and what is it? Is is it a system where, um, you know, two different sectors of society—one sort of historically like uh, more wealthy, more entrenched—enslaves the other? Yeah. Well, I mean, it has it has more to do. Uh, with, with racial categories because basically um, Arab and Berber, Arabs and Berbers um, who came into the country, you know, centuries ago, 
um, enslaves the, the native black population there. But their bloodlines kind of mixed. Um, but still, you know, um, that the, the, the descendants of those Arab, Arabs and Berbers um, who are called the white Moors do have fairer skin, do belong to a wealthier group. And the slaves who are the Heratine, who are the, the um, who descended from the native population, you know, are um, considered black. They have darker skin, um, often much poorer, living in poverty, poverty, less access to education and jobs. So it does often fall on racial lines, too. And so um, there has been some progress, as I said, for the first time. You know, thousands of slaves have been released. Some slave owners have gone to jail, though, for brief terms. And the government has kind of made symbolic uh, gestures. You know, it's it's uh, up to the minimum jail time for slave owners. It's claimed that it it wants to help um, ex-slaves in terms of getting their lives on track. But um, so it's at least acknowledged the effects of slavery. Um, but there's still an uphill battle for activists. Um, so, so getting back to Montgomery, uh, so you, how did you get like the journalism bug? Like what, what inspired you to, to go that direction? Yeah, I think it was more in college because even though my father, he's actually a professor of journalism, well, I didn't, yeah, exactly, <laughs> I think it was genetically passed on. Um, it wasn't until college that I actually started, you know, writing for the paper, writing for like the alt-weekly um, and then I think I did my first internship at a newspaper in Harlem. Where do you go to school? Really, uh, I went to Princeton. What's the Alt Weekly in New Jersey? Yeah, well, actually, it was the Campus Alt Weekly. Oh, they're the Campus yeah. Alt Weekly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we thought we were so cool. So, <laughs> did it have that um, same like kind of wide-bodied uh, texture to it, with like you know the same kind of the 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 same kind of like conventions that regular Alt Weeklies have? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like the late Boston Feast. I hear in Denver of the Westward. Great journalism. <laughs> I got to say, there is like great journalism in the alt weeklies. There's some of the better long form read, writing. You yeah. Can, and journalism I agree. You, can, you, can, you can do. Well, that's great. Okay. So, so you started your own alt weekly. Okay. Because you wanted mm -hmm. to do long form. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't start it, but I, I joined it. And, and yeah, and I was able to do. Yeah. I remember it wasn't my first long form. I, um, did a piece kind of exposing the sorority scene ah. <laughs> and that was fun. Um, but yeah, so I did that. I, I did the campus newspaper. I did the alt weekly. Um, and then I did an internship in a newspaper in Harlem, which I found very exciting, like covering crime. Um, what kind of, was it, um, what kind of newspaper was it? It was actually, um, one of the first, uh, or one of the longest running and first black newspapers in the country is called Amsterdam news. It still exists. And it was just a tiny staff. So all the interns got to do like real articles. So I remember on like my first week, my editor was like, go cover this murder of this, you know, teenage boy in Brooklyn. And I'm like, where's Brooklyn? And he's like, let me just give you the subway card and you can figure it out. Um, <laughs> But it was, yeah, I just thought it was so interesting because I'm naturally, I think, a more introverted person. And it, reporting forced me to kind of get out, outside of that and talk to people. And I just liked listening to people's stories. So after all of that, it was about trying to figure out how to do this professionally when there didn't seem to be many jobs yeah, yeah, yeah. You're entering the uh, journalism job market just as the job market is, is dying a, a slow and painful death. Yeah. 
And um, I didn't have much confidence that something would turn up in New York where all my classmates were going after graduation. But luckily, I found this program, Princeton Africa, that places um, recent graduates at uh, like mostly NGOs all over the continent for internships and they had two media positions. And so I applied for those. And where, where did you end up? So I ended up at a newspaper in Uganda, the, the official state run newspaper. The monitor. Is that what it's called? No, the monitor was the independent one. Oh. The new vision was the, oh, state the new one. vision. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, had you, I mean, growing up in the, in, in the States, I presumably like you, you still had lots of family back in Nigeria. Like, did you travel back to Nigeria as a kid? Well, I only went once. Um, we went, you know, when I was 11, um, for two weeks but so, so I didn't feel a real familiarity with the continent, actually. I um, when I went when I moved to Uganda, I felt like a complete newbie. I mean, well, I was a newbie to Uganda, but I also didn't feel like, oh, OK, at least I'm familiar with the continent in a, in a general sense. Did Ugandans that you met like treat you not treat you or like approach you or consider you more American or, or more like Nigerian? Yeah, it was kind of a mix. I, I thought at first that they would approach me um, as being more Nigerian, but I think they mostly saw me as just being American, which mm. I think is fair. Um, I, I don't think it was actually till I got there that I realized how American I am um, and that this kind of idea of pan-African solidarity that I had imagined was not really going to happen. Um, but it was, it was a learning experience. Um, I think... It helped me kind of realize my insider-outsider role um, in Africa. That there is actually, I think, a greater affinity I do have with, um, you know, with people in Uganda or Nigeria. Just that they've told me and that I feel um, by 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 myself having Nigerian heritage. But then also, you know, I am very Western. I'm very American, and so. So, so we're working at at um, the new vision in Uganda, the state kind of state run operate uh, operation. I mean, I have to imagine it's like a little less like you know the BBC, which is also sort of you know state run, uh, a little more sort of heavy handed. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious though to learn like how how you were able to navigate sort of doing your journalism there with um, I have to imagine people who reported like you know directly to the office of, of president Museveni. Yeah. I mean, I actually didn't deal with that that much because I wasn't really assigned to cover anything political or anything that sensitive. Um, you know, as I said before, I was covering a lot related to the civil war and, and the LRA rebellion, some, some, some environmental stories, um, but a lot of human rights stuff. So I could see it. I could see, um, especially in talking to my colleagues at the Daily Monitor, the independent paper, and, and hearing about how the government was was threatening them and then also interfering, trying to interfere with press um, in the country. But, I, but it, I, I didn't really, I wasn't really affected by it. What, what year were you there? I was there, um, let's see, 2006, 2008. Okay, so kind of like the the tail end of like the the end of of the the worst part of the civil war, right? Like the yeah. sort of end of like the night commuter phenomenon and all that. Exactly. Yeah, it was actually towards the end of my time there when they were trying to strike a peace deal, um, that ultimately failed. But the LRA 
did leave Uganda, although they didn't really sign a a proper peace deal. Yeah, now, now they're harassing the Central African Republic. Exactly. Um. So, like, how long were you there for for a full year? No, I was actually ended up staying for two years because I interned for about ten months, and then I decided to stay and freelance. And who are you freelancing for? Anyone who? Would pick um. You up? Yeah, I remember starting for the Mail and Guardian. Uh, which is an you know larger newspaper in South Africa, and then I, at the time, ended up doing stuff for like Time dot com and who else back then Christian Science Monitor, um, and then ended up stringing for the Agence France Press, which is the um, French news agency. How um like politically like repressive was the the situation at the time? Like how free were you to able uh, able to operate as as a journalist at the time? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, I was pretty free as a foreign journalist. You know, I can't say the same of my um, Ugandan colleagues, but as a foreign journalist, I, I did have a lot of freedom. They they seemed to care more about, you know, controlling journalists uh, who were writing for local press. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I could always kind of get um, government ministers and uh, army spokespe- uh, spokespeople on the phone to talk to me. It was it was definitely more um, Ugandan journalists. Can I, can I ask, like, how did that control work? Like, how how did the the government try to like control those Ugandan journalists? Well, I just I just remember stories of like, um, you know, um, some of the independent papers uh, being harassed. Um, I remember. Yeah, that that I mean that that's definitely a, a, something that sticks with me is, is is remembering stories of independent journalists being harassed um, by the government, um, and and I remember just being struck that they kept doing what they were doing anyway. And so so what did you do after Uganda? So after Uganda, I went to I had a short stop in Cuba, um, did some reporting there for like a couple of weeks, and then I moved to Mexico. And I stayed there for about a year and a half, also freelancing. Was it like reporting from Mexico versus reporting from Uganda? I have to imagine Mexico is like the uh, probably a not more frightening, but but like perhaps a potentially deadlier beat or a more dangerous beat. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, you know, because the main story, unfortunately, all it you know for a long time has been and still is the drug war. Um, I, I try to do a lot of different things. I try to write a lot about culture and health and things like that. But ultimately, everything seemed to be connected back to this core drug war story. Um, like, did you yeah. ever personally like feel threatened or, or feel intimidated in that time? No, no, I didn't. I didn't because, you know, I really was trying to do other types of stories. I did have friends who were, you know, explicitly writing about cartels and things like that but at that time i wasn't that wasn't the story i was drawn to um yeah i was drawn to other so, stories how did you end up at, at the new yorker then so after i left mexico i then got a job as an editorial assistant at the new yorker and i worked there for about a year and a half and i um yeah i was just working on the other side of things i mean i wrote a lot for the website but i was just reading a lot and seeing how stories got made uh, into their final form and also importantly learning what kind of 
ideas were accepted, what kind of pitches got through. And so after I left there, I moved back to uh, the continent. I, I was based in Nigeria, but traveling widely around the continent, freelancing. And from there, I ended up back back at the magazine. Um, well, what what, what stuff? So, what were you doing in 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 Nigeria then? Like, like, because I know that's probably around the time that I first started reading your stuff. I, I have to imagine it was mm-hmm. around the the the, the, the Chibok uh, incident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was I was just hustling. I was reporting on you know nearly everything, um, and and also not just in Nigeria. Um, I was traveling widely around the continent, constantly looking for stories and doing them. Um, you know, I was freelance at the time for most of my time there. So I was, um, often going on my own dime sometimes, at least at, at first to explore a story and then getting an assignment to write about the things, um, I was interested in. Is there a story from that time that, that you're particularly proud of? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I am, as you mentioned, um, I am really proud of my work um, around the Chiba kidnapping because, um, yeah, I just think that was a really uh, it was a really important story, and it was really important to get it right. And I think uh, I think I and my colleagues uh, really worked hard to do so. Well, what was that story like? What what? Uh, can you maybe describe the the situation of the the kidnapping and how you went about sort of reporting on it? Yeah, so this kidnapping happened in mid April. Um, was was a surprise to many people. You know, three hundred plus girls taken in the middle of their night, taken in the middle of the night um, by Boko Haram, um, and just kind of disappeared. And so this happened in an area of the country where it was de- very difficult to get access to. So for the first couple of weeks, even though there were reports about the kidnapping, there was no on-the-ground coverage. People, it wasn't safe to go to the town. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't secure. And so at first, the reporting involved just tracking down uh, the parents of girls who had disappeared, tracking down the girls who had escaped in the initial hours. Um, you know, just a lot of, uh, a lot of grunt work, calling people over and over, um, looking for contacts, trying to do these interviews in this remote part of the country. And then from there, um, you know, trying to get there, um, just despite the risks and, um, which I was able to do. And then also, well, how, how were you able try- to get there? Mm-hmm. Like, like what, like what, how did you actually make that trip? Yeah. I mean, uh, so the, the, the largest city in the Northeast, um, a city called Medugri was kind of the best access point. So once I got there, I mean, still it was unsafe to go to the town. I mean, the governor would only, the governor of that state would only go there with like a heavy military escort, which was not available to me. But I did end up making, um, forming a relationship with one of the residents of the town. We would often talk about what had happened. And he drove to the, that city, Maydugri. Um, he picked me up and after talking, we decided to go back together and you know, there were, there were only a certain amount of precautions we could take. You know, it was still risk, risky, but we decided to go on a market day and there would be more cars on the road. 
you know, despite the fact that this was a road that had been often attacked by Boko Haram, we could see, you know, car shells of cars that had been, you know, under gunfire and buses that had been attacked. But we, we, you know, we just got in a car and we went um, to the town. I stayed at his home and, and yeah, it was, it was kind of just a decision just to go, but also taking as many precautions as we could. And, and like, what did you see in this town? What did you find? Um, I, I, try, you know, it, it, it looked like kind of just like a normal town. I mean, it was very small. Um, and I, we went around and I talked to quite a few people. I talked to, I went to a small outpost where like so many girls had been kidnapped and all, but I think one had returned. I talked to the girls, I talked to their parents, I talked to people in the town. Um, I kind of just hung out with my host and his family and, you know, saw how people live their lives. There had, there had been no electricity in this, in his part of the town for months. And so we were all sitting outside for dinner one night and then it, and then, um, and then it just becomes dark and there's no electricity. So I can't see anything, even like the food in front of me, but the family and their friends, some of the friends who had dropped by to have dinner with us, they just kept talking like, like nothing, like nothing had changed. And it was complete darkness. And it was just interesting to see how people adjusted to um, their circumstances, even when they became so extreme. You know, we're in this place that was just attacked by Boko Haram, would later be attacked again by Boko Haram. We're in complete darkness and people are still eating and drinking and talking and it was, it was surreal almost. I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are on that uh, bring back our girls kind of social media campaign. I mean, was it at all consequential, you think, to the situation on the ground? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, I think people talk about the hashtag as if it's supposed to have actually brought back the girls. And I don't think, I mean, I think that's completely unrealistic. I think what it did was it was part of an international outcry that did put pressure on the Nigerian government at the time to do something about it. You know, this, we had a president or sorry, the, the country had a president at the time who didn't even speak about it for several days about the kidnapping, who acted as if he didn't really think it had happened. And only after international pressure and criticism, did he begin to speak about it? Did he really begin to you know, talk about search efforts and things like that. I do think it was important. Um, and and like uh, from your reporting on on the the schoolgirls who you know had been liberated, like, do you know anything about their circumstances today? Um, some of the girls who escaped. Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, fr- from the interviews that I've done and what the news I've heard. I mean, pretty much all of them went back to school, whether it was in Nigeria or some in the States. Um, you know, quite a few have actually already graduated now. I write about um, one of the girls in the book who did escape. She went back to school in the capital of Buja. She's since graduated. She wants to go to college. And so that has been actually really encouraging. And to see that, you know, they also resisted in a way because their resistance was going back to school when they were kidnapped simply for the act of trying to study and learn. So that's been really nice to see. So can, can I ask, how did you get that full-time job at, at The New Yorker? What was that process? Well, I mean, I, it was just um, a process of I had been uh, writing long-form features for them uh, and for several other magazines um, 
for, you know, let's say quite a few years, um, the whole time I was based in Nigeria. And, um, you know, speaking with my editors there, um, you know, I, uh, we decided, I guess, things to become official. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I, I mean, I for think. someone who, who, you know, started writing, you know, long form in, in alt weeklies, I mean, that has to, I mean, that, that has to, to mean a lot. I mean, I should say for people who are not as familiar, like the New Yorker is the most prestigious place that you could be a long form magazine writer. It's, it's where we all sort of wanted to be at one point. I used to be a magazine writer, mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. Um, but it, it is just something that, that is, uh, you know, it's like the standard and, and it's just like always, I'm always interested to, to learn how people ended up there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, and I was, um, it, and obviously it was really nice to have that connection before because I did work as assistant there several years ago. I knew the kind of stories they were looking for. And so when I went back to being a freelancer, you know, that helped me in p- the kind of pitching the kind of in pitching stories to them. I mean, not to say that all my pitches were accepted, but you know, it did help in, in thinking about the kind of stories they would want. Um, and I think after a while, after you do a certain number of stories for them, I think it becomes easier then to talk about, you know, making things, your relationship with them more permanent. So uh, you're on your book tour now. What what else is on the horizon for you? What kind of are you? Do you expect to do more reporting from from Africa? Do you think that's going to be your your beat for years to come? No, I mean, not in a specific way. I mean, I'm actually, my next story will probably be uh, from the States, my next few stories, actually, but, or from the States or from other places. So while I definitely think I'll have, you know, lifelong interest in Africa and be periodically periodically doing stories from there, I also want to write about other places, too, especially, you know, my own country. And any other any stories we can look out for in the future from you? Oh, um, yeah. I actually it was I'm finishing up a story um from Mexico that it was it was nice to kind of go back after time away and, and write a story. Uh also kind of related to someone resisting against extremism in a way. Um I think that's probably a theme I'm obsessed with for a while. Um, so yeah, I think that that'll probably be my next story coming out. Have you ever um, sort of sat back and thought about why you personally are so interested in in resistance and examples of resistance and, and that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think it does have something to do with the place where I grew up. I think that you know the Deep South, Alabama, has its own type of racial extremism. Uh, that was, you know, very clear to me uh, from the time I was small. And, you know, I've always been interested in those dynamics and interested in how people have have, have pushed back against that. And so, I'm, yeah, I think that explains at least part of it. Well, how did people um, around you push back against that growing up? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm thinking more of like, sort of activists before that, I think that when I was growing up, I think it was, it was trickier because the situation was less extreme. You know, it wasn't like, um, you know, school children, you know, being, uh, you know, attacked with hoses as they went to school. 
or black school shooting. It, it was it was a kind of more insidious type of um, situation, and I think that can be harder to deal with because it's not so obvious. And I think that's something you know the country still deals with today. Well, I just have to <laughs> imagine, like, like you know, I mentioned earlier, like you know. I see that the thing is like, I would imagine it would inform a lot of, of what Montgomery is about, but that ignores the fact that it's still like a deeply racist place. Right. Right. Well, that's the, the contradiction is that it does inform, you know, what Montgomery is about, but there's also that resistance to even, um, and there's also that resistance in some ways to even learning from it and progressing from it. I think that's why we still have this, you know, fight over Confederate memorials and, you know, all these relics of uh, a very difficult past. On a relic in the White House. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, Alexis, thank you so much for your time. Good luck on the book and congrats. Uh, you know, I mentioned offline, but it really is. It's a beautifully written book. It, it's, it's a wonderful book. And I urge everyone to, to check it out. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Alexis. And yeah, some some good episodes coming up. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, if if you are so moved, so encouraged, please do become a supporter of the show and unlock great rewards like my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service, in which I serve you every weekday morning the most important and relevant global news to start your day. There are also several bonus episodes that you can check out by becoming a premium supporter of the show. So thank you in advance, and we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.